You are locked into another episode of Meg Talks, the people's platform home to queer POC millennial conversation. Big up yourself if you're locked in for the first time, where your people, your team, your community, where your people them. And blessings if you return for another episode. You know, I'm always so, 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 so grateful. Um, you can check out every single episode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor. We're there, we're there. But if you're not sure, go check me out on Meg Talks Online on Instagram. And there's a link in my bio that will take you to all of the platforms there that you can check it out. Anyway, this week I am here with the founder and uh, founder and host of Busy Being Black. We've got another member of the UK Black Pride family and we've got a true inspirational person who I have to say they've got a little sheen on their thing. So welcome Josh Rivers into the goddamn building, people! <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. How have you been? How's your week been? I love this question. I, you know, I opened Busy Being Black with the question, how's your heart? Because mm-hmm. it just feels like such a nice gateway into finding out how someone's week is, what they're thinking about. This week started with a no. I've been interviewing for this job that I felt was so right for me. It was like a beautiful marriage of my passions and interests and experience. And I got a no from them on mm-hmm. Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I was in a room full of yeses. And I was very conscious that the ancestors were guiding my steps, that they that I got that no, I was a bit disappointed and I thought, you know what, they're keeping my path clear. And literally the next day I was in a room full of yeses. And then that evening I went to see Travis Alabanza's um, new play at Royal Court Theater in Sloan Square called Sound of the Underground. And it is tremendous, it's phenomenal. Like, it's incredible, I urge everyone to go see it. And then last night I had a great conversation with someone I love a great deal and plotted out the next couple of months. And so I'm, today I'm feeling well held and guided. We always give thanks to the ancestors. Mm. We always, and interesting, I was um, I was watching something that was talking exactly about that. It's just remembering that a note, that was it. It was um, one of the actors from the first Black Panther. Mm. Um, you know, the one that was Black Panther's little sister. Yes. I think she's actually a British actress as well. I can't remember her name, but I actually saved a post that I'm hoping to repost um, in the weeks to come. And she said, when I hear a note, I don't take it personal. That's just the an- my ancestors guiding me upon the route that I'm supposed to be taking and helping me not to become distracted by the world around me. Mm-hmm. And what you've just said, that's like the second time I've heard that this week. And it is very telling for where I am in my, my own personal journey. Mm-hmm. It's, just be focused, be grounded, be intentional. But don't. It's, I don't have to take in all of the things of the world. Yeah. Sometimes it can feel like there's so many things happening in this world that want your attention. And me, I'm, I'm neurodivergent. Right? I have ADHD. So my attention is everywhere more time than not. So I have to be very intentional of bringing it back down to what do I need to focus on? What's important during this time? And yeah, that resonates. Yeah. So I mean, I don't know if I haven't... I feel like I have ADHD, like mm-hmm. I feel like many of us do, right? Mm-hmm. I've said this before elsewhere that I feel like we're creative beings naturally locked into this kind of very rigid structure and 
time management style of life, mm -hmm. which I think runs counter to our nature. Mm -hmm. And I've resisted because of that, I've resisted structure, right? I want to be able to pursue my curiosities. I want to wake up in the morning and if I want to read a book, I can read a book. If I want to go dancing, I can go dancing. If I want to do my budget for the week, I can do that. But I want that freedom to be able to do that. But I'm going through this process now where I'm in the midst. I think this change started in October 2021. I started kind of shifting and just feeling very, like in my core, something is amiss. Like something's not right. And I was talking to... I. I don't know if you know, but Lady Phil and I are very close and I've been sought her counsel and was like, what do I do? And she said, you need to sit with these feelings. Like you need to sit with it for a while and figure out what your plan is. And then in April of 2022, that no conversation came up again. And uh, a friend sent me like this tarot reading and um, I'm an Aries and they were saying, Aries, this season for you is all about rejection. Like people are going to tell you no. And there are people who are going to be drawn to you like you're like you're full of glitter and glowing. But these no's you can't take personally, like it's the universe keeping people away from you that you might be attracted to, but who cannot get you where you need to be going. Mm -hmm. And so over the past year, I've been thinking about this transformation that I'm going through that I can feel myself going through. Um, and this idea that no's are path clearing, they're gatekeeping me, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're making sure I'd, I'm, that I'm not distracted. Mm -hmm. And so I'm enjoying this process at the moment of ritual. And I was I just recorded a, another episode for Busy Being Black uh, the day before yesterday, and I was speaking with a queer black theologian, and we the kind of scope of the conversation is about um, you know black queer faith and the grace that we carry around with us and that we express. But we were also talking about heartbreak and desire, and both of us have loves who are no longer near us, right? Mine's on the other side of the world. You know, his, for whatever reason, is not around anymore. And we were talking about how structure can also be, the structure that a loved, a beloved provides, uh, or that uh, a pace of our life provides mm -hmm. is a rhythm and that maybe we should be thinking about structure as rhythm like hold what's on the now. Wait, rhythm wait, of our wait, lives wait 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 hold up just has been here like five minutes and has just done blown <laughs> my mind it's already <laughs> hmm the rhythm what's the rhythm i was mm -hmm. the example i used was that right now because uh, i'm in recovery mm -hmm. and so i'm really focusing on my sobriety and healing and just being focused and sitting with my feelings and how my body feels and so one of the kind of small rituals that i've committed to is that in the morning i know what i'm having for breakfast mm -hmm. which is not like me i'll I, I normally just fly by the seat of my pants and if if nothing catches my eye, I just won't eat. So I, I have this ritual, like, in the morning, I'm going to have a banana sandwich. So I have, like, a toasted banana and peanut butter and honey sandwich. Yeah. And I said, that ritual sets the rhythm for my day. Right. And that rhythm is my, is my structure. Okay, so after I eat this, I'm now going to move to the gym. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to move to my computer. And I'm going to move over here to this book. And so I think I'm thinking increasingly about structure as the rhythm. Right. Mm. I like that. I like that a lot. And just movement, because it always brings me back to this thought I have about children. And when kids are excited, they move their whole body and express it with their whole body. <laughs> oh, but as yeah. adults, we tend to restrict it down to, 
I am cool. Uh, that was sick. That was dope. Yeah, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's so reductive, but there's so much more to express. There's so many ways to express yourself. And I think movement is so important. Sure. So like gym, parkour, um, dancing, performing arts in my younger years was so vital to my existence, my my very existence and my very ability to, my ability to, to cope. So it's very interesting how you've tied movement to the idea of scheduling and mm -hmm. that that that's completely mind blowing. But you, you started to talk on sobriety. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the listener community, some of you are going to be smiling because they understand my journey to sobriety. So I'm, I'm like, sober as well? yeah, oh. and I don't, I don't even drink anymore. I've, I, I've gone from coke to mandy to pills to lsd to turning all the way up on 100 friday night i'm out on sunday night i'm crawling back home looking mm -hmm. disheveled um to like i'll go out and dance and just drink water and what that what that that journey that spiritual unlocking and that personal unlocking that that came so yeah i, I was going to ask you what does sobriety mean for you in your situation I have a complicated relationship with sobriety in general. I'm a hedonist at heart. Okay. I think that we should all be off our faces all the time. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hear that. I, well, I have Dionysus or Dionysus, however you want to pronounce it, uh, on my arm. I'll show you because it's my favorite tattoo. But I have Dionysus on my arm. Okay, so you're going to have to maybe introduce who okay. Dionysus is. So I say Dionysus because it feels more elegant to me, but mm -hmm. I think the Brits say Dionysus. Okay. Right. So you might also know him as Dionysus. But Dionysus is one of the Greek gods. Um, and in Greek cosmology, he represents bacchanalia, revelry, sex, wine, orgies, fun, mm -hmm. right? And Dionysus was followed around by maenads, who were these kind of crazy cock hungry women who would tear men to pieces if they didn't satisfy their desires right but what dionysus represents is this refusal to abide by law this refusal to be held in place this refusal to uh take direction from anyone else who's a bit anarchic mm. right he's a bit of an anarchist and he believed in pleasure right he believed that pleasure was healing the maenads around him um they were, there was a kind of an ecstatic eroticism that surrounded him. But he, his story originates um, with Zeus and um, one of his lovers, who was a non-god, a mortal is the right word for that. Um, and Hera, Zeus's wife, was so furious with jealousy that she sent the Titans to kill Dionysus. They ripped him to shreds when he was a baby. And Zeus took his heart and according to which myth you read, sewed his heart into his thigh and grew another Dionysus. So Dionysus's response to the jealousy of the gods, to the drama, the cosmic drama of the of, of Greek, you know, deity life, mm -hmm. was to fuck off into the woods and say, I'm gonna go drink wine and have orgies. Right. Was, right. That's I, my kind of guy. That sounds that sounds like a three-day festival for me. Yes. And so he did. And so he was very uh, peripatetic. So him and his um, his followers, you know, um, would pop up randomly at all over the world mm -hmm. um, and in this kind of like erotic frenzy. Um, and so I'm learning more and more about Dionysus and 
this idea that pleasure is a very important part of freedom, of liberation. Mm. And that is something that has to be folded into the structures and systems of care that we build around each other as communities. And so as a hedonist mm -hmm. who is also deeply sensitive and is easily wounded by the world, wine and drugs is for me a, a no-brainer. Yeah. But I don't want to be numb to the world anymore. And I don't want, I want to feel fully. Toni Morrison said that, even the bad stuff, I want to be able to feel it. Mm. And so I, sobriety for me means kind of facing the world head on. Yeah. Because I think I have what, it, what I need to um, f be of service to the world, and particularly the communities I love. And to do that, I need to be clear-headed. So the challenge with my sobriety is how am I finding my pleasure? How am I figuring out what it is I actually do enjoy, what does bring me erotic and emotional and intellectual pleasure so that I can pursue those things more fully. There was a couple of things that jumped out for me. Now, my entry point to Greek mythology is with the Stoics. So like Marcus Aurelius and stuff mm. like that. Like, I love the Greek Stoics in terms of strength, courage, feeling the feelings and pushing forward anyway. Um, there, there's a, I've actually sculpted a lot of my, my life's philosophy around um, just a stoic way of showing up. Mm. But interestingly, this is one, this is part of Greek mythology that I haven't heard about. And I can see why, because I, just listening to you, I'm like, I don't indulge in pleasure in many ways. My primary priority is achievement. Mm. And achievement is often very grueling. I mean, it can strip you of so many things and drag you through the bush backwards in, the, in, in terms of you trying to ascertain that, right? And when you're talking about pleasure, in my mind, it become very, I, be, I became very aware that it's like you're talking a different language to me. And what I realized is, is I've grown up in a community where we were in survival mode. So your feelings, your enjoyment don't come into it because it's all very practical. Like what you need to do, you need to set your feelings aside. And I was having this conversation with Heather Moradeo today about the fact that, yo, sometimes I'm, I'm so disconnected with how I feel just through trying to push through and achieve what I wanted to because the goal is more important, but you've just brought me back into pleasure. Yeah. Mm. Like we're living an embodied experience. So I'm easily enchanted. I talk about enchantment all the time because I'm trying to do things that light me up, that give me goosebumps. And so I'm looking for things to be enchanted by. And so I'm enchanted a lot. And one of my current enchantment obsessions is Andreas Weber's um, The Biology of Wonder. And in this book, he's a, Andreas Weber is a biological philosopher, he's called. And so he's looking at the sciences to understand where the sciences went wrong, how biology has become this very kind of rigid way of looking at everything in the world, everything in the world as kind of everything just moves from point A to point B like a mechanism, like a robot, like a machine. He's saying that's not true, that even at a very cellular level, our individual cells each individually express a hunger for life, right? And that they happen to work in concert together to create this kind of um, embodied consciousness that we experience as human life. One of the things that he says that just blew my mind was 
he, the question he asks is, why do you think that humans love being in or near the ocean? Because us, we are the ocean. Right. Us going into the ocean is us experiencing what it likes to go, what it's like to go back to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And the ocean experiences us in a different way. Like through the, through us, the ocean experiences human consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it's just a beautiful way to think about our interconnectedness. Right. And to do that, you need to be able to feel, mm -hmm. you need to be able to feel pleasure mm -hmm. because what it's, what's also at play is that pleasure has been subordinated just across the world right like us feeling good is not just about achievement mm -hmm. right 100 it has to be more than that well yeah but we're not supposed to feel good at all because mm -hmm. if we were we would have all the provisions we need to feel good mm -hmm. and i think this stems i don't know i'm not an academic but i think this stems from the kind of um a religious impulse right a puritanically religious impulse that this this pureness that we're supposed to embody as fleshy humans is supposed to get us towards some higher gate or at some other point beyond this lived life. And I just really disagree with that. We're supposed to enjoy ourselves and each other and the world around us fully now. Mm, mm. Just hearing you speak, it is evident you have been on a whole self-discovery journey. And I would even expand that to a discovery and discovery of the world, mm -hmm. you know, a, a true curiosity. And I'm curious to know who was Josh at age 16 and at 21. And I picked those two ages specifically because I think they're defining, they can be defining moments of a person's life in terms of how we think, the, some of the decisions that we make, how we show up. So who were you at those two different ages? So 16 was when I came out and I came out in the, I'm, pl I'm placing myself visually so I know where I was. So I was uh, came out to my dad in the car after school. We were waiting for my sister to finish volleyball. So, yeah, so I was in Atlanta. And at the time, one of the things I remember most about that time was that I came out and I was popular in school. Because I had the, the two years prior, I had been in Texas. And we were living in this really small podunk town. And I went to this, even though it was a performing arts school, it was still a very tough school to be a black, uh, presumed gay kid in. Um, and just the kind of environment around this town was really toxic. And I hated that. But then in Atlanta, in Atlanta, I began to flourish. And I was in a school where I was liked, I was writing for the newspaper, I was taking Spanish classes. I was really engaged in school and excelling in school. And really that's what I was, I felt comfortable enough to come out. Cause I was like, oh, I found my people. Like I'm just gonna do this. Um, and when I was 16, my parents bought me. Um, I'm laughing because you know, you always think your parents don't know you. And I look back and I'm like, they knew me so well. My parents bought me for my birthday or for Christmas. Uh, the Tom Ford book. Now, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 36, about to be 37. I'm 30, just turned 35. Okay, so mm -hmm. we're of the same generation. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know, Tom Ford um, in the 90s um, and early 2000s was at the helm of Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. Mm -hmm. And he transformed both brands. He's also responsible for kind of like the overtly sexual mass media marketing. Like he started that with Yves Saint Laurent and Gucci. Like ads were banned. He was fined. Like he, he went all out. But what he did was he created these worlds 
like he created these sexy, unapologetic, erotic worlds. And I was utterly enchanted. So my parents bought me, like, he released this book when he left Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. And this huge tome in black said Tom Ford in big white letters. And it was that when at 16, I was like, I'm going to move to London and I'm going to go to London College of Fashion. And I did, which takes us to 21, because by 21, I had dropped out of school because um, I was taking quantitative methods and I'm not a math person. And I was on a course for fashion buying. I thought I wanted to be a buyer. I, I do not. And I didn't realize that math was like an integral part of this degree. And so I was like, fuck that for a bowl of Smarties. I'm off. And I left and I went and did Shipwrecked. What, the show? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Let me tell you how that show was my fave. And yeah. ship, Shipwrecked, for anyone that doesn't know, is I would say that very early stage reality TV where you're on yeah. a desert, deserted island, kind of in the what looks like in the tropics. Yeah, the South Pacific. Right. And then you have a camp which is divided, divided by gender. And they have each. Initially, yeah. Yep. And you have like these cool uh, titles or names for each group. So, like the shark tooth or the tigers yeah. or something. So, yeah, I was on tigers. Uh, you see yeah. it there. So, like. <laughs> we won, of yeah, course. So, I, I don't mean to digress too much, but I need to know yeah. how was that experience? It was interesting. I was just speaking to a friend about it actually the other day. I don't talk about it a lot, but I was 21. And in the South Pacific for six weeks, because our season, season eight, I think they changed the format. So they had the two islands, the two teams, and every week there was two new arrivals and the each island had to do their best to impress the new arrivals. The new arrivals had to choose an island and then the island had to choose a new arrival mm -hmm. and the other one got sent home, except the this one who got sent home was actually sent to a third island. And so then this third island team came back towards the end and we knew the sharks were nasty anyway. And they all knew the sharks were nasty. So they all came over to Tigers and we won. Um, and it was a great experience. I met a lot of great people who I'm not in touch with now. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I remember most, though, was that two weeks in, I was there for six weeks, two weeks in, I was ready to go home. I was like, this is so boring. You're literally just sitting on a beach eating lamb's tongue. <laughs> And people are so nasty. And so I just... I oh, and when we say nasty, are we talking about in terms of their mentality or their hygiene? All, I mean, it's hard to have great hygiene when you're stranded on a desert island right. and they don't give you anything besides right. a bar of soap. So there's only so much you can do. But I just think that like, I, excuse me, I wasn't used to living in that close proximity to people mm. outside of my family. So people passing gas and burping and fighting. And I was like, oh, I hate it here. I hate this so much. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn, but I also didn't know what, I, I hadn't yet learned how to sit with myself. So if I went to that desert island now, I'd be happy as Larry because I would go trekking off somewhere. I would go, I would find something to do. Mm -hmm. But at 21, I just, I was, I needed to move. I needed to expel energy mm -hmm. and being trapped in a desert island was not a way to do that. Mm -hmm. But I settled in, I settled in. It was a good experience. So for you in and around, let's say we're looking at age 21, what did what did the world look and feel like for you out, off the island? I spent most of my 20s like in a drunken haze. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't, 
I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had dropped out of school, did shipwrecked, had a bit of money from the winnings, was working as a waiter. I just, I was a bit aimless. Right. And I didn't really have any idea about who I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. And so our lives really were just working and getting drunk. I think that speaks to like the majority of people's in their early 20s or just in their 20s as well, just trying to, just trying to figure it out. Yeah, and I think... If I, I would put less pressure on myself if I had to do it over again, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, I think your 20s are for exploring. Yeah. I mean, I think that they sh- maybe shouldn't be exploring just drinking and working. <laughs> but I think that if, I think that I did, I didn't, I don't think I did any great personal development in my early 20s. And that came towards the end of my 20s. Mm-hmm. But most of my 20s is all really a haze. So tell me a bit about your cultural, your cultural heritage in terms of your heritage, where are your people from, how does that fit into the mix? Because it sounds again, what I understand anyway. You went, you grew up in Texas, and you moved to Atlanta. You've got quite what sounds like quite um, your family are quite intuitive, or your parents are quite intuitive in that they they knew they knew you. Yeah, they understood who you were. They were and, paying attention. Right, mm. and you felt free enough to really show, begin to show the world who you truly were, right? Yeah, I don't know if I felt free enough. I okay. think I just didn't know how not to. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. so I was born in the UK. I'm British by birth. Mm-hmm. But my dad was in the military, the American military. So my mom is British and she's always been here. They divorced really early. So I spent, I've spent most of my life in, in England. Um, and it was I, when I went to California when I was 12 because my dad was stationed out there. So I did two years in California, two years in Texas, two years in Atlanta, and then I came back. And that accent, that's the accent that stuck. But I think that what happened during from 12 to 18, being so close to my family and to um, the black culture that I identify with, which is black American culture, has had a really profound impact on how I view the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really know. I mean, I know who my white family are, but we don't really talk that much. Right. We're very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting when you talk about the black American culture. Um, and when I look at that in, in parallel to the black British culture, because I would probably say that I knew more about the black American culture than I did know, uh, than what I understood it to be black British when I was a child. And that was because my earliest experiences prior to being in any education would have been a Caribbean experience, Mm. right? It was a lot of Caribbean influence. So I learned how, I learned what what, what Britishness was at school with my friends. So it was like a whole cultural learning. But as I started to kind of understand what it is to be British, that whole concept of being black British didn't come till probably my late teens, early 20s, when I started to embrace Graham. Right. When I started to, when I saw, so I would have been about 16. So when Channel U came, came up and I'm seeing black, black boys hooded up, rapping over beats that were just wild. I'm watching Lord of the Mites, Lord of the Decks. I'm seeing Jammer screaming Merkel, man. And all of these things that helped me to realize this is us. And it was something that I felt proud of that my friends can rap. My friend Javan makes beats. We're in our bedroom. We're trying to, copy what we saw because it was so cool and it resonated the things that they were talking about so being black british was just never a thing for me until i was much older i was just jamaican Mm. 
So throughout that time, if I'm saying prior to Channel U days when I was, what, 15, 16, I would have been taking in Moesha. Yes. I would have been taking in um Sister Sister. Um what's the what's the um smart guy with the yeah, with Urkel. TJ? Yeah, yeah, you've got Steve Urkel. Yeah. All of that. So that I was taking in a lot of that. So that helped me to recognize what it is to be black. And I saw blackness sparkling over in America. I just wanted to be in America because it looked so fucking lit for black people. Um and even when you look at kind of TV um, and entertainment, you're not seeing, we don't have sitcoms like that, um, that are kind of black focused yeah, in the what UK. What was the only one that... Uh, uh, well, we had the Desmonds. Desmonds, yeah. Yeah, the, the, and, but even when I think about that, that was for the big people. That was for, because it was old people right. pictured at, for example, maybe my mum or my nan. Right, where Moesha was definitely for us. Yeah, yeah. with Miles and Hakeem and all of that, like that. <laughs> That that I could I started to understand that so she's gonna drive the core. <laughs> <laughs> so in saying that, now I'm I'm older and I started to look at how queerness plays out in slightly different ways. I'm like, wow! Even the concept that Drag Race came here, you know. But so what I'm saying is, I guess as I'm thinking out loud, is that the black. Uh, or African-American, I'm not sure what the right terminology is here, but that culture influenced a lot of us at a very young age. Um, and I think it helped to really build that sense of identity. So I wanted to really explore what black American culture meant to you growing up and also how that then translates into your, how you view and how you receive queerness. Mm. So I remember, so our family, the black side of our family is really close-knit. And even when we lived in the UK, we, you know, we were uh, spending summers in Texas. My grandfather lived in Seguin. My grandfather and grandmother lived in Seguin because my grandfather had his own church and he was a uh, pastor. And so we were always there for family reunions. We were always spending the summer there. I remember the summers with my cousins running around my grandparents' backyard and fireflies and the humidity. Like I have a really romanticized recollection of these childhood summers in Texas. And when we were in Seguin, we were only ever surrounded by other black families. So there wasn't like a, there wasn't, there was never a kind of a, an awareness that this is blackness or that this is black culture. It's just, it's what we did. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we drank Kool-Aid and <laughs> right. in trouble for all sorts of stuff. And, you know, my grandmother would look at me and I would be like, oh, I'm getting my ass whooped. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like many military kids, I was also surrounded by a, like a, a, a crazy diversity of religions, faiths, experiences, people, perspectives. So when we were in Texas, one of the saving graces was that we lived on the base and we lived in a cul-de-sac. And so next door, we were living next to a family of Mormons. Across the street, we were living next to this family of kind of JD, white and rambunctious white guys, um, agnostic, whose mother was Christian and she could never get them to go to church. Right. And we had my family. And, and so we were all kind of down the street. We had our friend Eli. And there was just kind of this wonderful mix of experiences. But again, no one ever looked at um, any other families and went, oh, they're a Jewish family, that's a black family or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess it wasn't really until I left Atlanta that I was like, 
oh, I'm missing blackness. Because in Atlanta, you, well, at the time, you could be black and not run into any white people if you didn't want to. So there's one, there's the city's quite segregated still, but it was very, it's a beautiful place to be black in. Mm -hmm. But I always grew up surrounded by all these different types of people. Um, and I felt like blackness wasn't really like it like when i came out for example my grandfather said i've always known you i've always known you were gay since you were four mm -hmm. so it wasn't there was no narrative in my family about a oh, black people aren't gay or that's a white person's thing like it was just for the most part accepted mm -hmm. and so i never challenged there was never a thought in my mind that because i was black i couldn't also be gay right 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 and so I came into my queerness, like in a political sense, much later. Because when I came out, I came out. I was out. I was not going back in. <laughs> Pink unicorn. And I kind of came out. And I really reveled in walking into every space and being the gayest person in the room. And that, for me, was more important than being black. Was mm -hmm. that I had to be gay everywhere. And as loudly gay as I could be. That's really interesting. Because my, my queerness comes probably... In terms of tears, it comes third place. So the first thing that comes first, the first, yeah, the first thing is I'm a maroon. Mm. I am a maroon. That blood pumps through my veins. It, it, it keeps my ancestors attached to my soul and informing me. The second part of it is that I'm Jamaican. I'm black, but I am Jamaican and I'm Cuban, right? That has, because that influences the way that I was, informed, taught the things that I love, mm -hmm. some of the expectations I have in this world. For example, food. I'm used to having a certain type of food, certain flavors, certain, if the seasoning ain't there, then I'm looking at, I'm looking at everybody crazy, like what the fuck's happening here? <laughs> yeah, you know, so there's that. Then my queerness comes in. Then, so it's, so it's really interesting to kind of hear you talk about where you position your queerness and how, and how that, how that was almost somewhat a priority for you. But I was going to ask, was it a in, a conscious priority or was it something that just, it was just how you expressed yourself? Just how I expressed myself. Because I never learned being black was a bad thing. Uh-huh. So I, I wasn't necessarily fighting against that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, I, I wasn't necessarily concerned with proving anything to anybody. Yeah, yeah. From a black perspective. But from a gay perspective, I did. Because I was mean to other gay people before I had come out at school, I felt like I had to make up for that in some way and had to show other people that it's actually okay to be who you are. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like it, it just felt like a priority for me. Yeah. I just needed to be, I guess also, it's also my sexual identity in a way, mm -hmm. or not in a way it is my sexual identity. Yeah. Um, and so I was also at that age where I was like exploring sex and all of that. So, mm -hmm. and, but the, but I was gay for a long time and now I identify as queer. Mm -hmm. Because that's it's political now. What is what is the difference in the in the terminology for you? I my understanding and my mm -hmm. belief and the way I use it is that queer is political, gay is not. Okay, gay is just a way of describing how two people love on each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Queer is more than that. It's that and. Mm -hmm. All right, go into that a little bit because I know I because I had a really interesting mm -hmm. um, conversation with an older guy. So he's probably mid 50s to maybe even in his 60s and he's a he's a gay openly gay guy living born and raised in the UK and so on and you know he he mentored me just at the start of this podcast helping me to kind of get my thoughts together and and I remember I referred to myself as queer and he was like 
mortified mm-hmm. by this. I absolutely mortified. And I couldn't understand his, the shock. I couldn't quite understand. So I had to ask him, okay, so explain to me where the disconnect is here, because this is a word that makes me feel very free. Yeah. But I recognize that this is a word that makes you feel very uncomfortable. Talk to me about that. And he was explaining how at one point it was a slur and all of the other things that came with that in terms of the negative connotation. So I get that part, but I wanted to kind of explore from your, like from just from your understanding, where does that political aspect come into it? So queer begins as a slur. Well, not maybe not even begins as a slur, like turns into a slur and then is reclaimed as I understand it in the academy, actually, in, in the university to kind of animate and explain queer theory. And queer theory emerges as a response to kind of mainstream gay movements that organized around assimilation and in organizing around assimilation left a lot of people behind, i.e. trans people of color, um, people living with HIV, disabled people, indigenous queer people, indigenous identities and wisdoms and knowledges, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of sanitizing of gay that happened. Um, We're just like you. We love just like you. Mm -hmm. We need to be just like you. That queer theory and queer activists since have been trying to complicate Right. So Kathy J. Cohen in 1997 writes Punks, Bull Daggers and Welfare Queens. And it's a seminal queer theory essay um, grounded in uh, political action. So Kathy's question is, who are your allegiances to? If your allegiance is only based on sexuality, then you're forgetting that someone's class position is different to yours or might be different to yours. You're forgetting that someone's race will be different to yours. So I know quite a few wealthy white gay men. My allegiance is not with them. They operate in a different class system than I do. They have access to resources I will never have. They're white. (laughs) Their Mm -hmm. interests will always be with themselves. My allegiance is to black heterosexual women. Right. Right? Not all black heterosexual women, some might be upper class, right? And, and so their interests won't necessarily align with mine either. Mm-hmm. And so queerness is an orientation that says, well, look at the intersec- intersecting issues. Look at somebody as a whole, complete being, not just whether they're black, not just whether they're queer or gay or what their sexuality is, or even trans people, right? There are high cl- um, trans people who are white in the upper classes who have transitioned and pass as cisgender women, they they do have a different interest than black trans women of black trans women, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to also think about that mm. um, as well. So queer becomes political and therefore becomes empowering. Mm. And and just to kind of press into to this conversation because I think it's fascinating. Mm, I when love, we... I'm obsessed. I just I'm like a student of it, and not I don't go to school for it. It's just it's something that really excites me. Mm. So I'm always reading queer theory. So you know. I'm curious to kind of explore your experience. Let me firstly get your pronouns, right? What are your, what was your, what your breath? He, mm. okay. So as a, as a queer man, black man, mm-hmm. how do you feel, how do you feel being positioned within the LGBT plus community? And I'm just going to talk it out a little bit, mm-hmm. flesh that out. So for me, I, I, I felt very displaced. I, it's like I walked into, I felt more connection with black heterosexual people than I did with the LGBT plus community course, at yeah. large. Um, and when I was like 17, 18, I'm seeing people in these check shirts, short hairstyles, two-toned. 
and this is what I'm being faced with. You, you, know, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? They were in the like Avril Lavigne music video. Right, right. <laughs> and Ashley Simpson. Yeah. Right, right. So like, and I was being faced with that as this is what it is to be a lesbian. Because at that time, that's mm. how I would have identified. And there was this one little club in the corner of Soho called, um, I think it was Candy Bar or something like that. And the representation in that place was horrendous. So I used to walk in there feeling like, literally like a rainbow colored unicorn in a space where I'm supposed to feel comfortable, yeah. right? And it was almost, it almost felt like they had a disdain for me, like there goes the neighborhood. Mm. So I, I've always had a, I'm still figuring that out, how I feel, where do I fit? What does community um, and connection feel like? So I wanted to ask from your perspective as Josh, as a, as a queer black man, how, what has your journey been to connecting with the LGBT community and how does that feel for you now? I think it was in 2016, I decided I wanted to be of service to the LGBTQ communities. I co-founded Series Q, which is a network for LGBTQ entrepreneurs um, with a few other people. And we were responding to the human rights campaign findings that something like 64% of college graduates go back into the closet um, when they go into the workforce. And so this data is from like 2015 or something, so it'll be different now. But we were responding to that because we were all working in the entrepreneurial space. And we thought, well, if it's 64% for um, in like the corporate space where they have affinity groups and support groups, what will it be like among entrepreneurs? Like we should do something about that. So we set up Series Q and it was in the process of Series Q that I was interviewing um, high profile LGBT people about their experiences. And I was like, oh, I could do this. Like, this is the kind of work that I want to be doing. I want to be asking questions and learning and figuring out ways forward for all of us. And so that's the, that was 2016 was kind of the start of me like wanting to be a figurehead, uh, an agent for change within the communities. My personal relationship to the gay community is, uh, and I imagine this is true for many men is complicated right i i look a certain way i i hang out in certain places and my my kind of overarching experience of the gay community is one of objectification yeah. and in many many times violation but also it's where i've met some of my best friends in the world and um forged some really transformative connections in my life i resist the kind of hegemonic and dominant gay culture. I think it can be really repulsive. But I also find myself in those spaces dancing to Kylie Minogue. So it's a, it's a contradictory, conflicting relationship mm -hmm. that I'm trying to figure out by carving my own space mm -hmm. in the world and attaching myself to other people who are creating spaces of their own as well. And UK Black Pride has been really helpful in that because it's this and UK Black Pride has been very helpful in that because it's been this, um, it, it is just this kind of wonderful community of people working their asses off to deliver this annual event, which is now the world's largest free Black Pride celebration. Come on now. Hello. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also busy being Black, mm -hmm. right? It's been this, it, it, what started out as a way for me to heal has become this this space in and of itself for other people to feel seen, loved, mm -hmm. and heard. So I'm still learning how to create my own spaces and how to gather around me the types of people who will help me feel um, like I can exist in the world as as everything that I am. Mm 
Because so often when we go into spaces, we have to like turn certain parts off. So sometimes I'll be in gay spaces. This is increasingly less the case now. But I have been in gay spaces where I've had to turn off the political switch in my brain that would have intervened in the conversation to say, y'all can't be having that conversation because I thought I, I can't be bothered mm -hmm. to be the only person in this space who cares today. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to be in those types of spaces. And so I'm increasingly in those spaces less. So that's just an example. Mm, it's, it's really interesting because I find myself around um, women, mass present women, mass presenting women and trans men um let us is it fair for me to say trans include trans men in that now that's more of a newer journey for me in terms of understanding but i've always been around women and i understand what that experience could be like in terms of being a person of color but i felt very disconnected to what that experience could meet what that experience could look like or could feel like for a man you know so mm -hmm. i really appreciate you just kind of sharing in that because I can see that there's there was um, an example that you gave in terms of there's a type of culture, a really prominent type of culture, which I find really unusual. And, you know, this is not me passing any judgment because we all like different things, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm like, how comes everything is geared to geared around this really prominent culture? Like if I, oh. if, if I for example, if I was to walk into Soho, how comes, 99% of these places are playing very similar music and then there are very similar behaviours, very similar cultures emerging and it used to blow my mind as a young person because um, I had like Carabana, Booty, mm. Sugar Rush, just a few little places in this little corner of Vauxhall that I could go to but I never understood why there was, why is there this dominant culture I I don't get. So kind of just hearing how you've how you've responded to that and like you said building community around you and connecting yourself to people that are creating spaces that are holistic for themselves that is really important and i think that's a teachable moment um for our listener community especially like our babies that are growing up you know in that it's so easy to walk into a space and be like okay yeah calm it's going to be cool from here on out i've got my community i'm going to find everything i need and sometimes you realize that maybe that's not always the case and that there's a refining process that you kind of get into a space and you realize what you do and don't like about it then it's like okay how do i build from here right. on out and what you were speaking about to me is that building process well i think it's also how do we get to this dominant culture i think it's also a scarcity thing okay it's just popped into my head so let me talk it out and see if it makes sense mm-hmm when we walk into a quote-unquote gay space and we see the the haircuts and the plaid or we see the t-shirts and the ripped jeans, whatever we see, mm. right, that is the kind of cookie-cutter version of whatever the dominant culture is, um, and, we, and we don't identify with that, we then contort ourselves to fit that. Mm. That's the problem. And that's what I did, right? I made myself small. I made myself mean. I made myself skinny. I did all this stuff that I'm not, that I didn't want to be, but I didn't know I didn't want to be, mm -hmm. to fit myself into this mold that was, wasn't designed to include me anyway. So this is why I resist these, these questions of belonging and inclusion. I don't want to belong in these spaces. These spaces are not for me. I don't mm -hmm. need them to be for me. Yep. What I need is to create spaces around me for me and for mm -hmm. people who think, like me or think adjacent to how I think because we don't surround ourselves with just like-minded people. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a very important part of my maturing as well. It's mm -hmm. been like, okay, well, who else is curious about 
the philosophy of biology. It might actually be a heterosexual white woman. Sophie Strand might be my spirit twin. And that's okay, right? Mm -hmm. She doesn't have to be queer. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have to be black. She doesn't have to be a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, who else um, loves reading poetry to trees? I found a partner who loved watching me do it, right? And so we will find these people who are our people Mm -hmm. um, when we're not trying to contort ourselves into these tiny spaces, Mm -hmm. because they are small spaces, right? They're limited, Mm -hmm. they're unimaginative. Mm -hmm. And we as black people, as queer black people in particular, need to be engaging our imaginations. And I think it starts with how we curate the space around us. Mm. I feel that, I I feel that, and I feel that restriction. I even felt that in, predominantly black queer environments where there's an expectation for mask presenting people to show up in a particular way. So I remember there was a time probably around mm, 2008 in and around that where there was this thing of like mass presenting people wearing these baggy white t-shirts and these, and these blue jeans. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then there was also like, you'd wear the matching hat with the matching belt with the matching shoes. Listen. And, and I'm not knocking anyone's vibe. If that's your vibe, that's your vibe. But, I was like, I, I've never dressed like that. I had the Sean John shirt with the Sean John script on it. Right. I mean, I was, <laughs> never, I never, I was never mass presenting, I think I should say, as much as I tried. <laughs> and I had the, the baggy straight like jeans on with the Sean right. John shoes. I had the full get up. Yeah, right. So I know. You know, and I was like, <laughs> before I entered this club, right? And then, um, then this is an observation I'm making within the first few times that I've attended Booty, which was my first kind of, uh, say, LGBT black queer event, right? And... I was like, me and my friend walked in because my it was my best friend, and we we got introduced together, uh, introduced to each other at six months old. We went to the same primary school, we went to the same high school for half of the time, went to the same college for half of the time. So we grew up like this, and we came out probably a year or two apart. So we were like, yeah, we're gonna go to this club. We're gonna, you know, we looked like aliens the way we were dressed because we were just cool. We had our own vibe going on, and I remember the pressure I felt. To kind of like, am I am I doing something wrong? Am I not gonna get girls if I don't wear this uniform? And I'm like, fuck this! I never came here to have to change myself even more. Mm-hmm. So like, where's the liberation in all of that? Um, I think even behaviors, toxic masculinity. I've never been like that. I tried to, <laughs> didn't work out. Mm-hmm. I broke a lot of hearts and broke my own heart seeing what I was doing. So there were also within. Um, the black queer community there was I felt a pressure and a, and a restriction and my response to that was I ran the opposite direction and started going to heterosexual clubs right and doing all of that and I loved it I had the freaking time of my life and that, can you imagine that's where I felt most free because there was no expectation or pressure on me on how I was supposed to shop I could just turn up mm-hmm. so with that journey I then realized that there's a void there's a void here and this is where the podcast, building a community, having the conversations has really opened me up into, you've kind of got to create what is right. You've got to define what's right for you first and then be really, be active in creating that for yourself mm. rather than feeling like you've only got a few, um, a few binary options and you have to go there and then there's an etiquette. Fuck that, if it doesn't work, just don't go. And I'm sure well, you... I mean, could... I'm thinking about music now. Mm-hmm. Like, think about the music artists that we love and the playlists we listen to. Nothing that we do, like when we're listening to music or dancing, is singular, mm-hmm. right? And yet, 
we're supposed to like operate and move within these singular identities in these kind of narrow spaces mm -hmm. but we don't live that way mm -hmm. so why when we come into queerness are we supposed to then live that way it doesn't make mm -hmm. sense queerness should kick the doors open uh ocean vong one of my favorite poets has a line from one of his poems and he says um a house kicked open with a house with the, all the doors kicked open to summer a house with all the doors kicked open to summer yeah like that to me feels like queerness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a house with all the doors kicked open to summer like what does that sunshine and that breeze let in what mm -hmm. do the fields outside of that house feel like mm -hmm. you know? i'm telling you as you said that my soul was just smiling like <laughs> yes i'm there i'm there with you isn't it mm -hmm. yeah. and so i always find a way to bring this up because i think it's important like a house with all the doors kicked open to summer is space right? We're talking about literal spaces, but also emotional spaces, mm -hmm. which means we're also talking about love. Right. Because my the definition of love that I work to is from Reverend Angel Kyoto, a black queer Buddhist slash theologian, who says that love is spaciousness. It's mm -hmm. creating enough space within ourselves to allow others to show up as they are. And that doesn't mean that we don't have hopes that things are changed or shifted but that to come from a place of love is to mean acceptance of what is, even in the face of moving it towards something that is more whole, more just, more spacious for all of us. Mm. And I had this conversation just yesterday on the show with one of my favorite thinkers and academics, Doug Maui Wubshet. And we were talking about rage and anger, which is a feeling many of us know mm -hmm. intimately. And I shared with him a quote about that included a question, what do we do with rage, right? That rage can be curated, crafted, cultivated into something useful. And he says, well, I also think of rage as the flip side of rage being generosity, right? The metabolizing of our rage into something useful, the metabolizing, the metabolizing of our disappointment and the limitations that are placed on us towards something that is more spacious for everyone is an act of generosity. And so if we can learn to think about our anger, our disappointment, our shame, alongside generosity, like that we at once open up space for ourselves to think more sensitively, more gently, more tenderly mm -hmm. about how we show up for ourselves first and foremost, but then also how we show up in relationship with other people. And I loved this 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 understanding of generosity being an actually an essential constitutive part of all these other um, negatively coded emotions. Very interesting. I was having a deep conversation with my therapist about rage. Mm. You know, rage and also it's sitting alongside imposter syndrome. Which yeah. is a scam. Right. 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 So I was like, these two <laughs> things. And so she made a good point. She said, sometimes, right, when you boil this down, you kind of strip back the layers. It's, some people can experience imposter syndrome. But what I come to realize is that that wasn't what was happening for me. Right. And it's what was happening for me is that there was, it's almost like a false fear, a fake fear. Mm. So I'm, I'm experiencing something and emotions are coming up that haven't been defined which I'm labeling as fear, which I'm then thinking is uh, me having some kind of complex of not feeling superior enough. And I'm like, nah, these are just 
unnamed emotions that I need to get to understand a little bit more. And once I understand them a little bit more, I can recognize the inner conflict and the inner turmoil that's happening, right? Mm. And then when you recognize that, that's when you start to recognize where rage sits in that and where all these other different emotions and being able to name them and say, okay, this is how I feel. Uh, rather than kind of having this broad brushstroke of, oh, it's fear, it's imposter syndrome, all of these things which don't help you to define the intricacies and the nuances of your existence mm. and how you experience things. So that was a really interesting thought process that I hadn't, I'd probably got some way with that, but shout out my therapist, Didi. She took me all the Brian way there Didi. with that. Yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> and then she started talking about that inner battle and then she used the example of... um. Luke, Luke Skywalker when he got into battle and cut off his own hand when he went in the cave. So anyone who's like knows about this stuff, I don't. My therapist used that example. Then I went on YouTube and Googled it. And I was like, <laughs> shit, this is fucking deep. But then it's like how unrecognized emotion and that inner battle, how you can end up fighting something. You don't really need to be fighting. Then you end up in a battle with yourself and then hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've kind of gone on a whole tangent on kind of just this whole conversation that I've been having quite recently around rage and just looking at these more challenging emotions in a very different way to what we would have seen them before and what people have, I guess, coined them. But I'm really interested to explore maybe a couple of key moments in your life that you feel have completely radically changed the way that you show up in this world and for yourself? The Baltimore riots in 2015, after the murder of Freddie Gray, was when I was radicalized, when I was awoken. Um, particularly when Obama um, admonished the, the rioters for property destruction. You know, this is not how you grieve. And that really pissed me off. I started crying actually when I read that. Um, and that's what that's when I woke up. Mm -hmm. Then it was learning about Bayard Rustin. I was learning about Bayard Rustin as I was reading the Malcolm X autobiography. So that was a very intense um, <laughs> coming to Jesus, as it were. Um, a baptism by fire is probably the most appropriate way to say that. And then that same year was my introduction to black queer theory in the academy. So the work of E. Patrick Johnson, Jafari Allen, Kathy J. Cohen, Devin Carbato, these incredible black queer uh, act, uh, academic activists who were um, talking about them. I mean, I have queers tattooed on my neck, Q-U-A-R-E. Mm -hmm. And Q-U-A-R-E, queer, is black and POC queerness. It's ours. And that was formulated by E. Patrick Johnson in an essay from 2002. Um, Everything I learned about queer theory, I learned from my grandmother. And his argument is that his grandmother, his presumably heterosexual grandmother, black grandmother, may have been homophobic, may have said some homophobic things. But everything he's learned about survival, feminism, showing up, grace, he's learned from her. Mm. And that queerness allows, allows us the space to incorporate other uh, people in our families and our chosen families and biological families as full, complicated human beings who might not always get it right, but who nevertheless impart great wisdom um, and legacies upon us. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have that. I was like, I'm going to put that on my neck. That's Quite fine. Because I, I, in doing a little bit of research about your background, who you are, I saw this come up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the hell is that? But I, in some ways, I understood that it's something to do with queerness, but I couldn't quite. Yeah. What I I think that 
I know there's many people alongside myself that are like, note to self, I need to go check Great. that out. Mm-hmm. What I'll do is I'll send you a link to the essay. Yes, please. So you can share it with. And that leads me to the, my other transformative moment was tattoos. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I have many. I've forgotten how many I have now. But per a reference I made earlier to objectification and violation, um, trigger warning sexual assault. I was my first like penetrative experience with another man was uh, an assault. Mm-hmm. And so that was when I was 17. And so it's taken me a really long time. It, I didn't even begin to comprehend what happened until 2015 during the Me Too movement. And, um, and since then, since I kind of decided to deal with it, I felt this need to reclaim my body in a new way. And I wasn't quite sure how to do that because as a gay man who looks a certain way, it's my currency, right? It's, it's what they tell us we're worth. Based on how my body looks is whatever my worth is. And so I'm in this process now of kind of disentangling myself from that really toxic narrative and tattoos are helping. It's my way of marking my body. And I had this kind of highfalutin conversation with a friend. I was like, do you think that marking our body can be a way of devaluing our body so it can be ours again, right? Because if you think about the way black bodies are, like, think about diversity, inclusion, and equity and all that shit and belonging. Mm. How do they measure whether black people's value to the business in pounds and pence. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that sounds like a slave block to me. Facts. <laughs> so Facts. I, and so how do we as black people reclaim, one, what it means, to, what value means, and also how we value ourselves. Mm. And so my marking of my body began as a way to kind of devalue it in the eyes of other people. But tattoos are all the rage. <laughs> it hasn't worked. But it's worked for me because I feel like an ownership of my body that I haven't felt in a very long time. Mm. If I decide I'm going to get a skull tattoo, I'm getting a skull tattoo and nobody can tell me any different. Right. And that's empowering. Mm-hmm. If I want to get my knuckles tattooed, which I'm going to do, I can do that and nobody can talk me out of it. It's my body. I'll do with it what I want. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a very interesting and transformative process for me. Mm. And I get Dionysus and I have poems written on me and I have... These healing hands make fists too, which is a poem from this black trans woman in LA. Like there's just all these amazing things and it's a, it's, it's become this vessel of self-expression that I think more accurately mirrors how I feel in my inside, on mm. my ins- within. That's beautiful. It is. And I think that from a black perspective, there, there can be- How are we doing on time? Yeah, we've got like 2.22. I'm just guess. I'm just. Um, I have to be in Tooting Beck by four. Okay. Cool. Cool. No problem. So, uh, t- interesting. That's the area that my my mum grew up. Is it? And that's the I area that I, I used to go to my nan's. It's a, a weird very, name. Yeah. It's Tooting Beck. Tooting Beck with the common. Are there good black churches in Tooting Beck? Okay. Yeah. I want a Pentecostal moment. I want a tambourine and Cause hey. I went... <laughs> yes, because I went to a Baptist church in Norwich because my ancestors were like you need to go to church. Because mm-hmm. also that's a part of the black culture as well. Like I'm enculturated in the black church, right? Mm-hmm. And I am religious slash spiritual. I don't believe in God as we know Him. I believe mm-hmm. in a God as I understand it. Mm-hmm. 
and and so I've been craving this this spiritual experience of being in the church. Mm-hmm. And so I went to my because my family's Baptist. I went to a Baptist church in Norwich, and I left after ten minutes. I was like, I'm not having these white people sing to me like this. <laughs> God wouldn't want that. You need to listen. You see, praise and worship. And that's when I come to like. I don't care. Let me tell you something. I will walk to the front of that altar yes. in front of 500 people and sing my heart. I'll get on my hands and knees and put my hands up. If that is what is required in that moment, I'm going to praise. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk... times I've cried in church. Yeah. God, that, I... that piece of crying, that piece of crying is therapeutic. Like, you'll be bawling from, like, yourselves. That's right. From the, there, there's, there's, it's, it's joy, it's pain, it's revelation, it's release, it's truth, mm-hmm. it's 100% vulnerability, it's so many things in one. But the reason why I went on to say that was that I love church. I love church. I love church so bad. I've rocked up to church with my girl and I'm like, you're not telling me anything. Yeah, I'm coming yeah. here. And I think that growing up, my nan's church was into in she used to go to this Pentecostal church and as much as I didn't like it because nobody took the time to explain to me why we were there, what was happening, what I'm supposed to take from it. It was, we're going here. You, we're going to put you in this little, this dress, these 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 little shoes and flout, fr- frilly um, socks, all this shit. No one is explaining to me the experience. But when I got older now, I stopped doing the drugs. Mm. The first thing that my spirit said is I need, it was like a purge. Yes. A detoxification. I need to be around some holisticness. Even what might be happening in the church isn't all the way 100. But it was far better than what was happening in some of those clubs that I was going that wasn't feeding my soul. Yeah, well, and I should say about churches, like many of us will have a complicated relationship to the church as a space, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily a complicated relationship with God. Yes. Right? And so what I'm craving is the... Because I think that people... I think what happens when you go into a church, I think particularly a black church, but I imagine, because that's my experience, I imagine it's true for other um, congregations and Mm -hmm. denominations, is that even if in practice the person next to you is homophobic, in prayer, in energy, they want the same thing as you, Mm -hmm. right? They Mm -hmm. want that connection. They're seeking that connection. And I think that what we find in church spaces, what we can find in church spaces is that energy that's the what we're missing mm. even if it's not even if the people around us aren't perfect like we are not mm-hmm. even if they still have some way to go to living if it's christianity even if it's some way they have some way to go to actually living by what living the way jesus did mm-hmm. their their there's their desire to be in that space their energy in that space still counts for something and it, and it adds to that experience so i think that's what i'm searching for mm-hmm. and which i haven't yet found is that beloved community that yeah. i i grew up in um, and I'm really, I'm willing to wait for it. I'm going to go to Atlanta later this year, and I'm going to get <laughs> top up on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, Charge up. You know, something that comes out really strongly that I receive, recognize, and celebrate you for is your ability to see people, to see humans in this imperfect state, and then have this radical acceptance of, okay, that's just how... This is where the, that individual, this collective is right now mm-hmm. and giving grace. Yes. Because we live in a harsh world right now where there isn't necessarily that space or that time to consider, to give that grace, um, to also forgive. 
in all of that. And and I'm not saying that from a place of judgment because that shit's hard. It's hard and it takes and time. Sometimes right? forgiveness is not possible. We have to be honest about that. Sometimes forgiveness means accepting what has happened and moving on. And yeah. creating the degree of separation that you require yeah. to heal. Sometimes forgiveness is, I'm not going to punch you in the face. That, that part, that part there. That's as far as it goes. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what I wanted to e explore um, as we draw to a close and start to wrap up is, how have you, how, what's, hmm, how have you become a person that recognizes the imperfection in this world, in space, in people? But you still remain quite positive and optimistic, and in and in a space of enchant enchant being enchanted enchantment. Yeah, I'm not optimistic. It's not a word I'd use to describe myself. Okay, uh, I'm a nihilist, but the kind of Nietzschean nihilist. So, which means that um, nihilism at its core destroys, so something else can be built. Okay, right. I'm not an existential nihilist. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that there's no meaning to life and there's no beauty in the world. No, the, the, we're surrounded by beautiful things, beautiful people, mm. be nature. The world is beautiful. So, but I do believe in a political nihilism that what yeah. we have is not good enough and it should all be destroyed. Um, I think because I need, I'm trying to model for people what I need, and I had this realization I think in 2018 where I was like, I mean, I'm in a space of healing. And I've been surrounded by people who are modeling what uh, accountable healing looks like in community. And they gave me space to show up, ask questions, be difficult, be sad, be angry. Um, they allowed me to be messy and complicated. And then I looked at my own life and saw that I had friends who were going through um, life. One of my friends is... Uh, as a sex worker and he's, I don't know him, we're not close anymore, but at the time he was going through this really difficult um, experience and he wouldn't talk to me about it. And I thought, how do I make sure that I'm living a life where my friend who feels shame because he's a sex worker, like, well, knows that I'm the one person in the world he can definitely come to. Mm. Like, because he had it in his mind, he didn't want to talk about it with me. And I was like, I'm the most, oh, you could tell me, you could tell me you killed somebody and I will be there for you. And so if that wasn't evident to him, then it means I had work to do. So I try to, I need space around myself and my best friend, Lerone models that, Lady Phil models that, like, and we create, we got so much space. <laughs> There's so much space. And it's so beautiful to know that you can just sit with someone in silence, or you can tell someone a problem, and it's okay. You could tell me anything, and I'm not going to judge you for it. I'm not going to make you feel small. I might ask some hard questions. Um, I might offer some advice if you want it, or I might just leave you alone to figure it out. But I can. I have enough to give where I can hold space for people without judgment. Mm, mm. And we we need that. We we we. I think as a black queer community. There's a lot of intrusion in our mental, physical, and emotional space. Mm -hmm. And being able to have that space is just sometimes a... Yeah. I needed that. And just remembering as, as an individual, if you have the capacity that you can create that. And just remember that we're not suggesting necessarily that you're creating that spaciousness for every single person you encounter. <laughs> that, but rather that, that you're choosing 
who you create that spaciousness for, who it's mm -hmm. safe for you to create that spaciousness with. Mm -hmm. And that's been very important for me. And so because yeah. I don't have the capacity to provide it to individuals en masse, Busy Being Black is my attempt at creating a larger space that lives beyond the, the physical for people to come into, put their headphones in, and they're, or I'm going to be enchanted or excited or... Mm. Ensorcelled is one of my favorite words. I think though that's a good point to make in terms of you can't, it's not necessary nor helpful nor maybe healthy to try and heal everybody and to try and be that rock and that anchor. I think being able to find your medium mm -hmm. where you can give and express and try and share and having your boundaries around that is also really important but i think having a heart of service yeah. in general allows you to operate in a way whereby you create a bit more space yeah because it's not for you you're not here as the answer it's not here about being a savior it's about okay how can we make this work what do we have how do we how do we celebrate and make a healthy meal out of what we have and we That's celebrate right. but also what do we need what may be missing and how do we find that together? That for me is very important when, when I'm coming from a space of service. Well, and I think if people want to try it. So I used to work in the service industry. Mm -hmm. um, I spent years working in events, membership, at Soho House, all of that stuff. And so I interacted all the time with um, people who were treated poorly by guests, by members, by um, elitist um, um, what is it called when you expect something? Um, is that word? Entitlement. It's entitled people. Um, and so my practice of spaciousness begins, uh, began rather, um, in me interacting with people who work in the service industry. Fair. So when I go into a cafe, I open myself up to that service person. I'm smiling at them. I'm engaging with them. I'm looking at them in the eyes. I'm, I'm not on my phone. So that's an act of spaciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm really thankful that you share that because that's a great example of something really small, really small where you're not having to necessarily go out of your way, but it's what you can do within your daily. What you're already doing. Right, right. It might be right. the the person who sits, I was going to say your concierge. And just, <laughs> 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 a middle class dickhead. <laughs> I don't know, the concierge at your apartment building. Um. Whatever your daily life is, mm -hmm. yes, building it into your daily life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And before we even wrap up, do you have any kind of positive, uplifting, nourishing words for our listener community? The first one that popped into my mind was you do not have to be good. Right. That's from Mary Oliver's Wild Geese. I have a tattoo on my stomach. Mm -hmm. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Mm. I can't wait to listen back to this. <laughs> I, can't, I, I, I often don't listen back. I don't. Really? Yeah, I, I don't. I just, I, I have the conversation, I release it. Oh, interesting. I don't, I don't attach myself. But huh. this conversation here, mm, I'm like, there are some... Uh, some articles, there are some writers, there are some quotes that I, I definitely want to go back and just um, take it in for myself as well. This has been wonderful. But 
I've really enjoyed it. Mr. Rivers, tell the people where they can find you on social media. So my personal Instagram, uh, should I do it to the camera? So, do what you want. Uh, so my, I'm Josh Rivers. I'm the creator and host of Busy Being Black, the award-winning podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. You can follow my personal Instagram on underscore Josh Rivers. You can follow Busy Black. You can follow Busy Being Black, of course, underscore Busy Being Black, and you can go to busybeingblack.com. Yeah, do all of the things, all of the things. Um, and you guys know where to find me, Meg Talks Online. You can find a link to all the episodes in um, the bio, in my bio. We didn't do the shoe cam. Oh, wait, guys, look at Joss's shoes. <laughs> look at these beauties. <laughs> I love them. Like I'm not even gonna get into the story, but the backstory behind these shoes and the two shoes others that go along smuggled through. out of Mexico, out of Mexico, baby. <laughs> no, it's been absolutely fantastic. And Josh, I hope you know you're gonna be coming back. We we have only but lifted the surface of conversation and things to unpack, and yet there are so many things that. I'm still yet to ask and I'm so curious about. So, Well, if people have liked this conversation, they're going to love Busy Being Black. 100%. Right. And I'm all about promoting our podcast space because we all contribute something slightly different. That's right. We it's all, an ecosystem. One, I remember you said that to me before and exactly there's enough space for all of us. So definitely go over and ch check out Josh's podcast. I, I love it. I love it. And um, I think we connected on... Um, we got listed as like some of the some really good po as good podcasts. I think it was I can't remember what publication it was. And I made a point of reaching out to everyone that was named, just say, "Hey, I'm your neighbor." And this is how how this interaction kicked off. So thank you very much for coming through. Like I said, make sure to go check out Josh's podcast, and you'll see Josh back on the platform. That's for sure. But guys, manners and respect every time. Until next week, bye.